Hello guys and welcome to Season 2, Episode Number 4 of the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast. Brought to you as ever by your host Paul, the true crime enthusiast of the show's title. On the podcast, we look at the more unfamiliar, obscure and often long forgotten cases that the UK has in its dark history, with a mix of some solved and some unsolved cases. As always, I thank you guys for joining me, newbies and regulars alike, and I hope that this week finds that you're all good. I'm good myself, mega busy as ever with this, that and the other, but we have had a couple of days of sun on the bounce here. In fact, it's been so nice here on odd days that it's been like the start of The Simpsons, and that always makes a person feel better because it doesn't happen that often here, unless where you live is always sunny and nice and it's the norm for you, like you lucky folks who live down under. Or pretty much anywhere that isn't here, really. It's colder than Glenn Miller's coffee here pretty much all year round, especially if you're proper nesh like I am. And for those of you who don't know, Nesh is a slang word from around here that means that describes someone who feels the cold really badly, like me. On a brighter note, I have just finished writing the next monthly Patreon supporter exclusive bonus episode in between regular episodes, so I shall get that recorded in the next week or so ahead of its release on the 1st of next month. Just a reminder that there are still three bonus episodes up for supporters to access right now, along with some other offers of things as well, stickers and such with the new show logo on. If anyone's interested in supporting the show, I can be found on Patreon as the True Crime Enthusiast, with some new patrons joining me this week, so big shout-outs and thanks must go to Mike Featherstone and Bethan Truman. Thanks so much, guys. It's very much appreciated and I hope that you enjoy the bonus content that being a Patreon supporter of the show brings. I must also say some big thanks for all the feedback received concerning last week's collaboration between the True Crime Enthusiast and the Outlines podcast here on the show. I gather it was enjoyable from what I've learned, and it's something I certainly enjoyed. I think it's good and refreshing to try these things, and I look forward to working with Jess again at some point in the future. Promo time now as always guys, and here this week I'm bringing you the promos of a couple of independent podcasts that you may just like the sound of and want to hear more by, the Lustmordia podcast and Occulte Veritatis. I'll pass you over to the hosts to explain what they're all about. Hi, I'm Lucy Mortem. And my name is Ginny. And we invite you to join us every week on Lust Mordia, where we discuss our favorite true crime topics. But not just true crime, any and all things dark and mysterious that pertain to the human psyche. Cults, conspiracy, weird pop culture. But hey, we're not professionals and we're often inappropriate. We really bank on you finding that charming, though. <laughs> so turn out the lights, lock the doors, and find us on your favorite podcast app. Hello, I'm Lude Gallifrey. I'm Sage Murray. And I'm Leon Felger. And we are the Occulte Veritatis Podcast. We talk about anything that intrigues, horrifies, or interests us, including true crime. Serial killers. Military conspiracies. (laughs) And other mysteries and horrors of reality. So get cozy with your favorite alcoholic beverage. Smoke a joint or two. Only if it's legally purchased medicinal marijuana, of course. And tune in. We would love to have you. You would. You can find all of our links, all of the ways you can subscribe, and the rest of our bullshit at www.ovpod.ca. We hope you listen in soon. Lust Mordia and Occulte Veritatis there. Catch them on iTunes, Podcast Addict, or pretty much wherever you grab your podcasts from. For this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, 
and for the second time in the last few episodes I've recorded, I have opted to cover a case for my home area, North Wales. It's a case that goes back to the mid-1990s to the seaside resort of Llandidno. Now a cheery reason I'm always reminded of Llandidno is that some years ago I went there to see Mitchell and Webb, the guys from Peep Show, uh, live with my best friend. My best friend has a big booming uncontrollable laugh and he laughed so much that a stony-faced woman who was sat in front of us turned round and asked if we could actually stop laughing at a live comedy show. Anyway, she soon turned back to face the stage when I told her that laughing was the whole point of the show and to stop being such a miserable bastard. So about 10 years before me chastising this Zelda-looking killjoy, Landidno was the location where a crime occurred that was so evil and horrific, it shocked and angered not just the community, but the nation also. It's often remembered as the crime that broke the nation's heart. It's one I remember still, Although outside the area and the UK, I'm not actually sure just how well known a case it is. As the crime is still remembered more so in the locality of where it occurred than in the public conscious, I have tried to maintain sensitivity and respect whilst creating the episode. I've not tried to sensationalise any of the aspects of the crime that you'll hear within. It's a case of simply what we do on the podcast. It's all or nothing, isn't it? As usual, this episode contains content and descriptions of crime that some listeners may find disturbing, especially so because it deals with offences against a child. Again, I don't think the case featured this week is one that's been covered by other podcasts of the true crime genre. I haven't found it if it has, but of course it may very well have been. But please be extra advised this week. This is a sad case and it contains details that listeners may find disturbing, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the case of the murder of Sophie Hook. Today, Grandfather Jerry Davis still walks his dog along the North Shore Promenade on Colwyn Road in the North Wales coastal town of Flandidno. It's the largest seaside resort in Wales where Jerry has lived for many years. The promenade is a long stretch of road that leads from a residential area winding past the shore before leading into the town of Llandidno itself. It's a very busy area and it's a long stretch that's used by holidaymakers and residents alike. Midway down the long stretch is an open-air paddling pool named Craigadon, and each time Jerry passes this now, he's reminded of a horrific discovery that he made nearly 23 years ago now, one that still to this day haunts him. In a recent interview with the North Wales Daily Post newspaper, Jerry said, It's still there, it will never go away and that's it. I'm just very sorry it happened. There we are. I remember leaving the house when it had just turned 7am, walking down the beach and seeing a little body there and that's it. It was marble white. What Jerry was discussing was a crime that was described more than once as the crime that broke the nation's heart and it's still remembered with shock, anger, revulsion and sadness today whenever the subject of it crops up. As with other cases featured on the show, this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes against a minor that whilst discretion and sensitivity has been applied where possible, some listeners may still find the content of the episode disturbing and upsetting. So bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we take a look back at the murder of Sophie Hook. On the 29th of July 1995, seven-year-old Sophie Louise Hook was visiting relatives in the North Wales seaside resort of Flandidno with her family for the weekend. 
She was a bright and happy child and was the second eldest child of Julie and Christopher Hook. Supply teacher Julie and advertising executive Christopher were both from the Flandidno area and had met and begun a relationship in the early 1980s before marrying in 1984. Christopher did well as an advertising executive and promotions came as fast as the Hook family grew and eventually by late 1993 the Hook family consisted of Christopher, Julie and their four children Gemma aged 9, Sophie aged 7, Joseph aged 5 and Ellie who was just 21 months old. Sophie was even at such a young age known as the extrovert of the family and she was described as a bubbly and vivacious girl, a real Shirley Temple character with her brown curly hair and her round face. A happy and fun-loving child, she was even at such a young age a very promising violinist and artist and loved and enjoyed writing poetry. She had been born and lived in the area of Flandidno for most of her life but by late 1993 had moved with her two sisters, her younger brother and her parents, Julie and Chris, to live in the pretty village of Great Budworth near Winsford in rural Cheshire as Chris had accepted a new job nearby as an advertising manager. That Friday the Hooks had travelled from their home in Budworth to visit Julie's sister Fiona Jones, her husband Danny and their four children in Flandidno for the weekend as it was the summer holidays. The Hooks and the Joneses were a close-knit family and did a lot together, regularly visiting one another at each other's homes, and as a result the children from each household were more like siblings rather than cousins. The grandparents of Sophie, her siblings and cousins, Pearl and Paul Roberts, also lived in the Flandidno area, and would also join in on the frequent family get-togethers. The 70-mile distance between the two families hadn't affected their closeness one bit, and they were still regular visitors to one another. Saturday the 30th of July 1995 was another such get-together, this time with a garden party and barbecue planned to celebrate Luke Jones's ninth birthday at the Jones's house in Brynabiar Road in Flandidno. The house had a large back garden enclosed by a sturdy wooden gate and at the rear of the garden beyond the hedge that bordered it was a bridle path that leads onto Finnan Sadun Lane, a short road which leads down to the main road that runs alongside the seafront. Now it's not a massively long bridle path, it can be walked in less than 5 minutes. I know this because I took the opportunity to visit the scene during research for the episode. That afternoon, the children had a fun time having water fights, playing in the paddling pool and messing about in a tent that had been bought as a birthday present for Luke by his grandparents. His present from Sophie was a sleeping bag that was chosen by her parents. And that evening Luke had decided that he wanted to use it whilst camping out in the back garden in his new tent. Not all of the children wanted to do this, just half of them however. And eventually it was decided that half the children would head back to the Hook family home, whereas the others would camp out and both families would meet up the next day in Chester. Sophie, her nine-year-old sister and her two male cousins would be the excited ones who'd spend the night in the tent. This was a great adventure to the children and one that their parents were happy about. It was in their secure garden, it was well lit and they were close by anyway in the lounge to keep an eye on them. So that evening the children settled down into the tent, playing games quite late into the evening. They had a feast, a barbecue and a campfire and then they began to tell ghost stories to one another. The kind of thing that kids do when they're out camping and there's usually one who gets upset or scared. In this case it was Sophie's younger cousin. When the four had been back into the house for some soft drinks, 
He decided that his camping adventure was over for the evening and he went to his own bed, leaving the other three children to it. By 12.45am, Mr Jones had checked on the three children and found them all fast asleep, so he zipped up the tent and went back inside. Mindful that one of them had already decided to sleep indoors, he left the patio door to the house open so that they could come indoors if they should wake up afraid or were ill during the night. At about 2.30am, Luke Jones woke up and checked his watch, noting the time and noticing that Sophie was lay between him and her sister in her sleeping bag. He then turned over and went back to sleep. The next morning was every parent's nightmare. At 7.30am, the children awoke in the tent to see that Sophie's sleeping bag was out on the lawn, wet with morning dew, and it was empty. Well, it was almost empty, because her favourite toy and companion, a stuffed giraffe that Sophie had had since she was a baby, that she called Blankies, and that she went absolutely nowhere without, was still in the sleeping bag. Thinking that she'd got up just moments before to use the toilet, they waited on her returning. But when she didn't return after a while, they began to think maybe she was playing a game or a joke on them, and they went to look for her. She wasn't in the house, and she wasn't anywhere to be found. When Mr and Mrs Jones were alerted to this, they immediately made a frantic search of the area, the street, the bridle path and nearby fields, wondering if Sophie had for some reason woke up in the night and wandered off and would appear all of a sudden when she was shouted, tearful and scared. But nothing, there was no sign of Sophie, and the sick with worry Joneses called the police at 8.20am. Earlier that morning, about an hour before, Jerry Davis had been out taking his two dogs for their early morning walk on Clandudno's North Shore Beach at Craigadon, and he'd spotted something laying down on the beach. Now the site where Jerry was is only a very short distance from the Joneses' house and the bridle path a distance of less than quarter of a mile down a residential street and across a main road. During my visit, I again walked the route and it took me just six minutes to walk whilst documenting the scene also. The something which Jerry was later to describe as being marble white was what he thought at first to be the cliched thought that it was a mannequin. But sadly it's never a mannequin, is it? He said also that he should have known it wasn't, because the dogs ran away from it. Realising with horror that it was the body of a small child, Jerry covered the body with his own t-shirt, a well-meaning gesture to try to preserve the child's dignity even in death, and went to fetch police. Upon their arrival, they could understand with revulsion and horror why Jerry had felt the need to cover the child up. The body was that of a small girl, and it lay naked face down on the shore. No clothing was found near the body, and it was visible to the eye that her body was badly bruised from head to toe. They could clearly see what Jerry could see, and despite initial response from those attending the scene to check for any signs of life, there sadly was none. A home office pathologist, Dr Donald Waite, was called out to attend the scene, and just as he was on his way, police got the call about a missing child, a young girl, that they instantly suspected they had sadly already found. Within a short time, it was indeed confirmed that the body was that of Sophie Hook. In the days following the discovery of their daughter's body, the Hook parents courageously appealed to the nation in two television appeals for help in tracking down Sophie's killer, and this quickly became known as the murder that broke the nation's heart. 
Sophie's mother especially hit a chord when she said, She was a vivacious, fun-loving, extremely popular, beautiful, intelligent child. No child could ever have received or given more love to us, her brother and her two sisters and all of her family and friends. The one question we keep asking is why? Why our Sophie? We are such a close family and we have been ripped apart by this. The murder inquiry was being led by Detective Superintendent Eric Jones from North Wales Police. In a statement released to the media, he said, Whoever was responsible for this crime is a very dangerous man, a brute who must be caught quickly. As he said this though, near enough from the very start of the inquiry, police believed that they knew the identity of the monster who had taken Sophie, who had brutalised her, and who had sickeningly raped and killed her. They had him in custody, and monster was a pretty apt description. He stood six feet eight inches tall, and practically had more legs than teeth, with acne-scarred skin, blank, greasy hair, and clothes that stank of filth through months of not being off his body. Howard Hughes towered over women and young girls, and he loved the fear and revulsion that he aroused in them. He was born on the 6th of June 1965 in Llandudno, the youngest and only son of Gerald and Reenie Hughes, into a household where he or his three older sisters, Karen, Heather and Lauren, wanted for absolutely nothing. His father operated a very successful quarrying and contracting firm in the local area, and as a result the family were very comfortably off, living in a four-bedroom house in a half-acre of grounds in the seaside resort of Colwyn Bay, which is very near to Tlandino. But from the start, whilst the three Hughes girls flourished, it was apparent that all wasn't well with Howard. He was abnormally tall for his age. He'd reached six feet tall by age just 11, and he was six foot eight inches tall at adulthood. This was eventually diagnosed as due to him having a chromosome abnormality called XYY syndrome. This is a condition that occurs in about one in a thousand male births, where the male has an extra Y chromosome, and so has 47 instead of the usual 46 chromosomes in his genetic structure. Symptoms of it include developing severe acne, being taller than average, and it comes with an increased risk of developing learning difficulties. Hughes had all of these, he was educationally slow and having dyslexia didn't help him, and he was sent for psychiatric outpatient care. His father Gerald also paid for him to attend a series of private schools, hoping that each time a fresh start may bring Howard around. But Hughes never took to schooling at all. The pattern of a disruptive pupil repeated itself wherever he went, with one establishment, Lindisfarne College in Wrexham, rejecting him after two terms and refusing to readmit him at all, despite his father even offering the headmaster double the normal school fees to take him, and with, with good reason, because fellow pupils wherever Hughes was enrolled remember him to be a violent bully who picked fights with young or old and one who took a sadistic delight in killing small animals or birds with a large knife they habitually carried around with him. As soon as he reached double figures he began to offend, and in a pattern that would develop and remain constant throughout his teens and into adulthood, Hughes was frequently in trouble with the police, and often in front of the courts as a young offender. Finally, in 1975, Hughes was sent to Bank Hall, which was a residential school for educationally subnormal children in Chapel on the Freeth in Derbyshire. But again, Hughes repeated his already set character pattern throughout his time here. He was to remain here for the next four years. 
But in 1979, he went to Woodlands Private School in Deganwy in Wales, where despite his desperate parents paying for Hughes to receive extra private tuition, Hughes failed to gain any qualifications and was to leave school with nothing. By age 16, in 1981, even his parents and sisters were terrified of him, and he'd begun stealing from them also. It was also this year where Hughes first came to the notice of the courts for violence and for sexual offences. He had assaulted a seven-year-old boy, whom Hughes took into a derelict house where he then, in the victim's words, he exposed himself and made indecent suggestions. He picked me off the ground and threw me down. He was a very strong man. He wound up astride me with both hands around my neck. Perhaps wisely, the boy pretended to be dead until Hughes had left, before he then fled and raised the alarm, identifying Hughes as his assailant. Hughes was subsequently arrested and convicted of the assault on the boy, and with the agreement of his desperate parents, he was placed under a two-year mental health supervision and committed to St Andrew's Psychiatric Hospital in Northampton under the Mental Health Act. Hughes was released from here after a year, and had a period where he lived rough around the Northampton area, before being found basic temporary accommodation by social workers, and where he was to stay for several months. Not surprisingly, his behaviour and temperament caused major stresses between his parents, and it was likely that Hughes's general attitude and behaviour was a major contributing factor to Gerald and Reenie's marriage breaking down, and whilst he was in St Andrews, the couple separated. Hughes returned to the North Wales area in 1983 and moved in with his mother to the family home in Yerburg Avenue in Colwyn Bay. He continued to drift aimlessly and offend in the same vein as he had throughout his teens and by age 19 Hughes had assessed no less than 17 convictions for offences including assault, burglary, theft, criminal damage, threatening behaviour, possession of weapons including knives and an air rifle and motoring offences the latter which he served three months for in a youth detention centre. Following release, Hughes had also become much more increasingly aggressive and violent in nature than before, and was seemingly unafraid of or undaunted by any opponent. A neighbour of Hughes's from the time described him, remembering, He was always in fights with people much older than him. Everyone was terrified of him. We had a lot of problems in Colwyn Bay in the early 80s when the mods and rockers had a revival and Howard was a mod wearing a parka and all that. As soon as any trouble broke out, Howard would be down there. He absolutely loved it. Hughes was unable to hold down any kind of job after leaving school or any regular employment of any kind. His father, although he was disappointed in his son, refused to give up on him and gave him no less than six different roles over time with the, within the quarrying business that he ran, Roger Hughes and Company. Each one proved to be a disaster, usually with Hughes adopting the spoilt brat attitude of refusing to do anything asked of him or listen to any instruction as he was the boss's son and as though this afforded him some sort of status or something. On another occasion, carelessly, perhaps even deliberately, Hughes wrecked machinery worth thousands of pounds as a thank you for being given a job. Yet despite this, he was still helped financially with money from his parents, so he continued to drift around the area fecklessly, not working and instead devoting his time to generally causing trouble and being involved with the police. On one occasion whilst he was in custody, he leapt 25 feet from an upstairs window in a police station onto a concrete yard 
and he severely damaged his ankles for some time afterwards. That helped him live up to the sobriquet of Mad Howard that he had already begun to accrue. Childish in nature, Hughes made no friends of his own age, instead preferring the company of children to adults, usually small boys aged 10 to 12 years old, whom he could either impress or terrify. He was described by more than one person as a child trapped in a man's body, who when he wasn't out roaming the area would spend time at home playing with toys. Hughes had a large collection of vintage dinky model cars, and he would polish these lovingly and kept them in a display case. He did the same with toy soldiers and would play for hours and hours in the garage at home. Now it was 18 figures for myself in 1985. They were probably my best loved and fondest remembered toys. But I was only seven. I wasn't a massively tall, acne-ridden oddball of an adult. Hughes was a familiar figure not just in Colwyn Bay, but in the neighbouring seaside resorts of Flandidno and Rose-on-Sea also, wearing his scruffy denim jeans and jacket which he would keep on for months on end and razzing around the towns on his mountain bike at all times of the day and night, more often than not accompanied by a monstrous 14-stone Rottweiler dog of his named Bryn. Now as you can probably imagine from what you've heard about him up to now, Hughes was a dark presence in a light area, and he was shunned and feared for his behaviour. He was well known to the police in these areas, who would receive many reports about antisocial or menacing behaviour that Hughes was capable of. Things like playing loud music all night to annoy his neighbours or taking pot shots at people from his upstairs window with an air rifle. As a result, police regularly kept an eye on his whereabouts. Worryingly, on several times even when he was in his teens, Hughes had been accused of indecently assaulting young girls, two who were aged just five and three years old. But in this case, although he'd been arrested for these, the case had been dropped due to insufficient evidence. A subsequent report of him molesting a nine-year-old girl was also dropped and the girl's parents did not want the case to proceed, fearing that it may further traumatise the child. There were no less than five other allegations of indecent assault brought by or on behalf of children, as quoted, and in each case the charges were dropped by the Crown Prosecution Service because the victims were so young and could not have given reliable evidence. There were other reports too, with many children coming forward to tell of their encounters with Hughes, how he'd either chased them all over one of the towns or had struck them, but these were not acted upon and it seems that police considered him more of an eccentric rather than a dangerous threat. In fact, one woman who reported that her daughter's underwear had been taken from a garden washing line where they were hanging out to dry, a desk sergeant told her, Oh, it's only Mad Howard. He'll calm down, he hasn't done enough to be prosecuted. So it seemed that back many years ago, a character such as this, who was well known as a deviant, was just left to get on with it without being locked up, ignored because they were classed as just a bit mad. I remember many years ago there was a flasher who lived by where me and my folks lived. I shall mention no names, but he was well known as one throughout the area, and he's from a well-known local troublemaking family and he was never ever nicked for it. Despite his love and proclivity for flashing at young lads, proper exposing himself or making disgusting sexual proposals to them. And it was always young lads as well. He did it to me and my friends countless times. Mind you, as kids, when we got over our initial fear of him, he was more likely to receive a hail of bricks and abuse rather than a visit from the police. So what kids did at the time, and it's quite unsavoury where I'm from, 
and the flashers now dead. Not from a stray brick, I must add. No, he shuffled off of natural causes some years ago. So good riddance, rot wherever you may be, you horrible deviant. So Hughes had continued with this way of life for years, right up to 1995, and he'd accrued many convictions, although mostly they were for petty thefts such as stealing chocolate bars from supermarkets, and he'd only ever received two short sentences of imprisonment. He was well known for his bizarre and criminal behaviour, he had an extensive criminal record, was rumoured to be a peeping Tom and a flasher, also according to some, and it was common knowledge that he had an unhealthy interest in prepubescent girls, of which he'd been reported as indecently assaulting at least on seven occasions throughout the preceding years. Now whilst this is unsavoury of course, and he would undoubtedly be a person of interest in any such murder investigation, did it make him Sophie's killer? He was a prime suspect from the off, and later that afternoon, before Sophie's grieving parents had even made any television appeals, before they had even begun to believe what horror had been visited upon them, Howard Hughes was arrested at the home he shared with his mother at 3.50pm. He was taken to the police station in nearby Rill instead of Landedno, as crowds of people had already begun to flock to the area, along with the press who had already besieged Landedno police station. And whenever horror such as this happens, word quickly spreads and there's always understandable high public feeling about it. Just two years before Sophie's murder, the scenes outside courts whenever the killers of James Bulger appeared a testimony to this. It can be dangerous, it could prove to prejudice any trial stemming from charges brought as a result of the arrest. And of course, if an innocent person is arrested and identified, it can ruin someone's life. Just think of Colin Stagg and his wrongful arrest for the murder of Rachel Nickell on Wimbledon Common in 1992, or more recently of landlord Christopher Jeffries for the murder of Joanna Yates in 2010. Hughes was kept in police custody for the next four days, during which he was to constantly deny any involvement in the murder. But during the time he was in custody, a chain of compelling circumstantial evidence was building against Hughes. He began by giving an account of his movements on the night of the murder, admitting that he'd been out on his mountain bike throughout the day and night. He'd roamed all over the area, including having been on the bridle path that ran behind the Joneses' house that Saturday afternoon. He also admitted that he'd been out in the early hours of that morning, the time frame in which Sophie had been abducted, and this was confirmed because Hughes was spoken to by a police officer who knew him at about 2.30am that morning, whilst Hughes was sat on the promenade in Llandidno, just a short distance away from Fynan Sadun Lane. So police now knew that by his own admission, Hughes had been out and about all that day, and was in Llandidno at the, around the exact time that Sophie Huck was abducted, having been seen by a reliable witness, the on-duty police officer who knew Hughes. Putting his story to scrutiny, when police carefully retraced Hughes' steps that he claimed to have taken on his route home, they led to a spot near the beach where some clothing was found concealed. It was a very distinctive torn and sodden pink and white Winnie the Pooh nightdress, a pair of child's knickers and a pair of Marks and Spencer socks embossed with pink flowers. These were later confirmed to have been the items of clothing Sophie Hook was wearing when she spent the night camping out. When she was abducted from the tent and then beaten, raped and strangled. 
The search of Hughes's home was to reveal hidden in a foil-lined container, secreted in a gap in a stone wall at the property, a large stash of pornographic paedophilic material, mainly pictures of prepubescent girls, and a compost heap on the other side of the wall revealed a plastic bag in which were secreted three pairs of children's knickers. Several pictures were found that Hughes would cut out and keep of children in their underwear when he saw them in magazines and catalogues, and there was also a large collection of pornography that showed Hughes's obsession with the shaved or hairless genitalia of women and prepubescent girls. So with Hughes very much clearly now in the frame for Sophie's murder, other evidence, albeit circumstantial, came to light. A six-year-old girl named Amanda Roberts came forward to say that she'd been playing in a park nearby to her home that Saturday afternoon, when at about 4pm she was approached by Hughes, and in her words, he tried to get me to go with him. The girl ran away towards home afraid. This park was just a short cycle ride, less than four minutes, from the bridle path at the rear of the Joneses' house. Had Hughes been sexually aroused by listening to the sound of Sophie and her cousins playing in the garden and seeing them run around in a state of semi-undress, and then had been forced to flee when spotted by the woman walking a dog, and did he then go off like a ticking time bomb, sexually aroused, and attempt to put his fantasies into action just a short time and distance away, and he couldn't control any urges? On the 2nd of August, Hughes appeared in a police lineup where he was alleged to have started shaking with fear and allegedly said to another person in the lineup, you won't like what I've done. Now it's unclear if Hughes was the person picked out of the lineup by the witness. Also whilst Hughes was in custody, during their investigation police had spoken to a convicted paedophile, 32-year-old Michael Greedy, who had an alarming story to tell. He told how he had lodged with Hughes and his mother, who he'd known since the age of 13, at their home on Yerberg Avenue in Colwyn Bay, staying for three months from Christmas 1993 when he was homeless after coming out of prison. That must have been a delightful household, that, mustn't it? Very, very cheery and uh, wonderful. While Skeedy was lodging there, he told how Hughes would regularly share his twisted sexual fantasies about assaulting young girls with him, saying, He wanted to rape a girl of four or five. There was more than one occasion when we had a conversation and he said he would like to abduct a girl, have sex with her and then murder her, strangle her or cut her throat. So if you couldn't get more of a clear-cut suspect than that, there was more to come, for Hughes was to confess his guilt to the murder of Sophie, not to police, but to his own father. After being questioned for four days, by the 3rd of August 1995, police were about to have to release Hughes from custody. They had plenty of circumstantial evidence pointing towards his guilt, with witness statements concerning his character and putting him in the right place at around the crucial time, in the early hours and that Saturday afternoon. But there was no forensic evidence linking Hughes to the murder at all, and the Crown Prosecution Service could not be persuaded to proceed with charging him on this basis. Just before he was released, however, Gerald Hughes arrived at Llandidno Police Station, where by now Hughes had been moved to. Despite he and Howard's mother not being together anymore, he was still Howard's father, and what do you do in such a situation like that if it's your own flesh and blood? Most of us can't even imagine it, can we? 
Hughes asked to be able to speak to his father and he was allowed to in private in a private room out of sight of detectives. The conversation went something as follows. Gerald Hughes said to Howard, If I'm going to stay in this room, I need to know whether you did it or not. Hughes then took his father to one side and said, Dad, yes, I did it. Dad, I've got to tell someone I did it, I did it. You don't know what it's like to be sexually frustrated. I persuaded the girl to go with me down to the beach. I've been sexually frustrated since 1990. We went to the sea and the girl started to scream. I put my hand over her mouth and I kept it there until she stopped. When she went oof, I knew then that I'd done it. I took all her clothes off and threw her body in the sea. He then went on to recount having seen Sophie and the other children playing in the garden and around the tent from which she was later abducted earlier in the afternoon. He claimed he had invited one of the girls to go with him, revealed to be Sophie, but she had refused. He then returned at 3am, crept into the garden and up to the tent, and awoken and persuaded the girl to leave the tent and walked with her down to the beach. The girl, revealed to be Sophie, then began to scream, causing him to put his hand over her mouth. When she was dead, he'd thrown her naked body into the sea and discarded her clothes in bushes on the way home. Understandably, Gerald Hughes was left reeling from this. Apart from his own son telling him this, Gerald actually knew Sophie's family. He'd known the family for a considerable number of years. Shocked, he asked Howard whether he had sexually assaulted the little girl. Again, there was instant confirmation about this, and then Hughes showed his father the route he had taken home on a map. The conversation was then interrupted by the arrival of one of Hughes's sisters, Heather, who immediately went over to her brother and began to question him. Jerry, perhaps still not being able to take in what he was hearing, said to Heather, He did it. He's just told me he's done it. There's no point going over it again. He's done it. This entire conversation had taken place in private, and had not been recorded, nor was in the presence of any legal representation or appropriate adult. A few minutes later, when Mr Hughes emerged from the room with Heather, he was asked to make a statement, but he refused at that time. Showing the route that Hughes had outlined on the map, he then told a detective, I will tell you this, and this only, that if Howard is involved, this is the route by which he went home. Mr Hughes then went home and eventually called a private family conference with his daughters Karen, Heather and Lauren and after some conversation between the four, later that afternoon Gerald Hughes returned to Llandidno police station and made a statement to police, recounting the confession that his son had made to him. It was from this statement that police were able to retrace Hughes's route home that evening, where they quickly found Sophie's clothing, exactly where Hughes said he had discarded it. Adding to the paedophilic pornography that they'd found at Hughes's home on the evening of the 3rd of August 1995, Howard Hughes was re-arrested and charged with the abduction and murder of Sophie Hook. News of Hughes's arrest spread rapidly around the areas of North Wales where he was so well known, and whilst people's reactions were of disgust and anger, they weren't of surprise. A former neighbour of Hughes was quoted at the time as saying, I think it was only a matter of time before he did something like this. No one round here likes him and everyone would steer clear of him. He was scared of blokes but he would have a go at women or children. My girlfriend says that several times she's been driving down the road 
and how he has come out flashing V signs at her. There were also many angry scenes when Hughes appeared at Llandidno Magistrates Court the following morning, very much of the kind that Thompson and Venables had attracted just two years previously. With Hughes in custody, some 12 days after Sophie had been so tragically taken, she was laid to rest in a pregnant funeral at St Mary and All Saints Church in Great Budworth. In what her shattered parents decided should be a celebration of her life, the 350 mourners in the packed church sang Sophie's favourite tune, The Lord is My Shepherd, and heard Christopher Hook read her favourite bedtime poem, a mischievous rhyme about feeling too ill for school but well enough to play. Good night, Sophie, he said. Sophie's teacher, Dorothy Strange, spoke of a child of beauty who was an utterly free spirit at ease with herself and the world, saying, Sophie took pleasure in creating beautiful things. How could someone so young know so naturally the rules of living and loving and giving that so many of us take so long to learn? We have been privileged to be part of her short life. In a poem in the Order of Service, her older sister Gemma wrote, Sophie, my precious little sister, I am missing you dearly. I know you will always be with me. When I look at pictures of you over the past seven years, I hope you will look at them with me. All the happy times I spent with you, and will spend with you, I enjoyed, and will enjoy. It was signed, Your Ever-Loving Sister. After maintaining her composure so well throughout, it was at this point that Julie broke down uncontrollably, and had to be comforted by her husband. Howard Hughes's trial for the murder of Sophie Hook began on June the 26th, 1996, in the very same courtroom at Chester Aziz's where the Moores murders trial had taken place three decades before. I'm sure those are crimes that hardly need another mention here for their infamy. For once in his life, Hughes had made an attempt to look presentable. His shoulder-length hair had been neatly combed, and he had on a clean, double-breasted charcoal suit. He entered a plea of not guilty to the charges of abduction and murder. Opening the case for the prosecution, Mr Gerald Ellis QC described to the jury how Sophie had travelled to Llandidno with her family that weekend and the celebrations for her cousin's ninth birthday that Saturday afternoon. During the sunny afternoon, it was revealed that Sophie had stripped to her underpants to play with the other children in a paddling pool in the garden, as children do in all innocence of course and this was confirmed by a statement made by Sophie's mother which was read out in court, an extract being, Because it was such a lovely day, Sophie took her clothes off and was running around in just her knickers. I went at about 4pm, just after they cut the birthday cake. Hughes was alleged by the prosecution to have been lurking on the bridal path at this time from a concealed point on the path, which was confirmed by several witnesses who had come forward to police to say they had seen him in the area on his bicycle. One of these witnesses was the woman walking her dog up the bridle path at about 3pm on the afternoon of the murder, who saw the man that she was to identify as Howard Hughes crouching in the bushes in the direct vicinity of the hedge at the rear of the Joneses' garden. The court was told how he had told her that he had dropped money and was looking for it, but the prosecution outlined that this was a feeble cover story for the fact that Hughes was spying on the garden party, and from this concealed position on the bridle path, the prosecution claimed that Hughes would have been able to clearly overhear the children's conversations and excited chatter, and would have been aware that they were planning to spend the night camping in a back garden in a tent. Mr Elias went on, 
In their innocent play, these children, wherein little or nothing, made targets for the depravity that he was to home in on later on. Doubtless their happy chatter in the garden, their shouting that the tent was to be their bed for the night, gave him all the information he needed to carry out his evil intentions. It seemed the end of a perfect family day, but during that night Sophie was removed from the tent, taken from the garden, and subjected to the most appallingly violent physical and sexual assault. She was then manually strangled and her body thrown into the nearby sea. These atrocities were of such wickedness and depravity that they almost defy belief. Mr Elias went on to continue that Hughes was bent on taking and using a young girl for his own sexual purposes, acting out a fantasy that had been building up in his mind for some time. He had boasted in the past of his liking for girls of four or five and of his wish to abduct, sexually assault and murder a young girl. The court was then told that on the afternoon prior to Sophie's murder, Hughes had been surprised by a 12-year-old girl who spotted him again crouching on the bridle path behind the Joneses' home. Later that day, he had passed the same girl on his bike nearby and had shouted, Show us your bum, or words to that effect to her. The witness was clear about this because it had frightened her at the time. Next came the timeline of events that was able to have been ascertained at the time Sophie was abducted or murdered, with the jury learning that she was last seen in the tent at the exact same time that Hughes was confirmed as being a quarter of a mile away, and sometime between then and 7.15am when her cousin next woke and found Sophie missing, she was silently abducted from the tent. Luke Jones gave testimony to this via video link. The shocked courtroom was then told about the post-mortem findings. Jurors openly wept as home office pathologist Dr Donald Waite testified that he had first examined the body in situ as it lay face down on the beach before performing the autopsy at Gwynedd Hospital in Bangor. The post-mortem found that Sophie had been raped and sodomised and her attacker, who had stripped her of her underwear and Winnie the Pooh nightdress, had almost certainly broken her ankle and one of her arms in an act of deliberate violence. The upper arm bone was fractured and was consistent with snapping in a manner seen in many cases of infant abuse, which must have been done with considerable force, and the post-mortem report was to reveal that Sophie must have been in so much agony that teeth marks were left inside her lower lip and on both sides of her tongue. She had various cuts and bruises to extensive areas of the body, and had possibly been knocked unconscious by a heavy blow to the head before being strangled. Dr. Waite described the head wound as being consistent with those seen in road traffic accidents with a head striking the windscreen. This would all have occurred when Sophie was still alive, and it was in his professional opinion that it could have taken up to three minutes of manual strangulation for Sophie's killer to choke her to death. Poor, poor little girl. There was no forensic evidence for the jury to hear against Hughes as such, but herringbone pattern shoe prints matching the shoes that Hughes wore constantly were found on a rhubarb plant leaf in the Joneses' back garden. It was also not lost upon them the fact that following the murder, he'd had the clothing that he habitually wore for months on end without ever washing, laundered for once, and as a result negating any possible forensic evidence that may have been gleaned from them. It was also revealed perhaps demonstrating premeditation, that Hughes had taken the time on the Friday before the murder to shave his entire pubic hair off 
to ensure that there was no forensic connection between himself and the body. He had placed Sophie's body in the sea so as to erase any evidence that may link him to the killing, but had made the mistake of failing to dispose of her clothes, an action the Crown claimed was so that he could go back to retrieve them later on to add to his hidden collection. Three witnesses were to give powerful evidence at the trial towards Hughes's guilt. Firstly, a local petty thief, 30-year-old Jonathan Carroll, was brought from the prison that he was serving a sentence for burglary at the time of the trial, and he testified that on the night of Sophie's murder, he'd been out looking for places to rob in the Flandidno area. He was in a garden of a house in the vicinity attempting to steal a dinghy when he heard someone coming up the street, telling the court in his own words, I heard a rumble, so I waited until I could see who it was, and it was Howard Hughes. He was carrying a hessian sack that was about four feet deep, and there was a human leg hanging out of it. Michael Greedy, the former lodger who had told police of Hughes's fantasies about raping and killing young girls that he had shared with him, then gave evidence to the court. Here he repeated what Hughes had shared with him, testifying, He said he would like to interfere with them, he would like to touch them and have sex with them. He said this over a period of time on more than one occasion. When cross-examined by Hughes's defence barrister, Patrick Harrington QC, Geedy admitted that he himself had a string of convictions for offences against minors, and that he had served two prison sentences for, but retorted by saying, Listen, I've been convicted for what I did, and I've paid. I'm not standing here being prosecuted by you. I don't see what my background has to do with this case. I am not on trial for murder. Perhaps as a testament to just how much the level of public feeling that there was surrounding this case, Geedy himself had to flee angry pursuers when he left Chester Aziz's at the end of the first week of the trial. He was chased across the car park by an angry mob. But the most powerful witness for the prosecution was Hughes's father, Gerald, who told the court the confession outlined earlier that Hughes had told him. With his voice breaking with emotion, Gerald Hughes told the court, I was hoping against hope that he was in no way connected. It was so traumatic. He then screwed himself up to show me that he was in pain, to show what frustration really was. I felt shattered. I know the family of Sophie Hook and her grandparents. I've had contact with them over many, many years. The defence suggested that Hughes's confession may not be to murder, but that only he had said he may be able to help find Sophie's clothing, to which Gerald said, You can suggest what you like, but that is rubbish. My wish is that I never had to see him or tried to see him. I would not be here now if he hadn't said it. Mr Elias said that the Crown rejected completely any suggestion that Sophie had accompanied Hughes willingly. As any parent will know, one can lift a sleeping child without instantly waking that child, Perhaps the first conscious thought that they have is that it's their mother or father lifting them. Sadly, by the time Sophie realised this was not the case, it was too late. Hughes was questioned for 70 minutes in the witness box on day 23 of the trial and was to deny emphatically having anything to do with the murder of Sophie Hook, often at times exploding with rage or breaking down in tears. He denied ever having conversations about raping and killing young girls with Michael Geedy, and he denied confessing the murder of Sophie to his father. 
claiming that his father had made up a pack of lies to get Hughes away from the area. When asked about Sophie's clothing, he offered the feeble story that he knew where it was because he'd found it lying on the promenade and picked it up to use as toilet paper before changing his mind and discarding it over a hedge. He admitted owning large collections of pornographic material as well as indecent photos of young girls and pairs of young girls' knickers but claimed that he had found these dumped in a skip. He did concede that he had a sexual interest in children that he had, in his own words, taken a fancy to, and that he had an obsession with their private parts, but he continued to deny any involvement in Sophie's murder. The jury got a glimpse of Hughes' temper when, as he was shown pictures of cut-out pictures of naked children that were seized from the search of his home, he shouted, That doesn't make me a child killer. This is about the fucking murder of a girl, not what I cut out. I'm not answering any more. I am not Sophie's killer. It took a jury just six and a half hours deliberation to find Howard Hughes unanimously guilty of the abduction and murder of Sophie Hook, to which thunderous applause and whistles broke from the packed public spectator gallery. The jury were then told of the prior sexual allegations against Hughes, and passing down three terms of life imprisonment, Mr Justice Curtis told Hughes, You are a fiend, and your crimes are every parent's nightmare come to pass. At night you spirited a seven-year-old girl from her family, raped and buggered her with such savage ferocity, and so cruelly put her to death. No girl is, or ever will be, safe from you. You are a man driven by a morbid fascination with having young girls as sexual partners. I make it crystal clear to you here and now that my recommendation, bearing in mind your appalling crimes and the risk you pose to young girls, is that you are never ever released. As he was led away, Hugh's mouth to the press gallery, I didn't do it. Sophie's parents were not there to see it, having been too distressed to attend the trial, but her uncle Danny Jones was there though, and he began crying as Hughes was led away. After the verdict was announced, Detective Superintendent Jones praised Gerald Hughes, saying, He is a man of honour who did a very brave thing. He must have searched his conscience for a very long time, but he came up with the right answer. Doubts about the strength of evidence that convicted Hughes have been raised because it can be argued that the case against him was, although overwhelmingly compelling, entirely a circumstantial one. His case was reportedly being looked at by Innocent, an organisation that campaigns against miscarriages of justice being looked at, and an archived copy of the arguments that they put across to support this view can be found in the show notes this week. I must admit that I'm certainly unconvinced about the arguments presented by them, as the mainstay of their work seems to be the lack of forensic evidence to support Hughes's guilt. There is no forensic evidence that ties him to the body or the scene granted, but then the body had been placed in the sea which would have removed any forensic traces anyway. Hughes had also, against character, washed his clothes that he habitually wore for weeks on end that day, and he'd also shaved off his pubic hair the day before. And can it really be argued that along with this compelling circumstantial evidence, witnesses would then conspire together to lie about his character, fantasies that he'd shared with him, what they'd seen that evening, and even his own father make up a confession that would send his son away to prison for life, 
just to get Howard Hughes put away at the expense of leaving the real killer still out there to do it again? And what really are the chances of there being two men out there, both with the mindset of abducting, raping and killing a young girl in the early hours of a Sunday morning, in a quarter of a mile radius? Don't make me laugh. Hughes has twice appealed against his conviction in this case. On the 5th of September 1997, the Court of Appeal first gave Hughes leave to appeal against his conviction for the abduction, rape and murder of Sophie, but two weeks later rejected Hughes's bid to have his convictions quashed. Hughes's second appeal took place on the 4th of September 2001, but the Court of Appeal again decided that there were no grounds for his convictions to be quashed. The judges who made the decision also ruled that they would not allow Hughes to further contest his convictions unless any new evidence turned up. Hughes then decided to take his case to the European Court of Human Rights, but he has so far yet to do this. His whole life status was quashed however in 2002, after the then Home Secretary announced that Hughes was one of four convicted child murderers who would each spend a minimum of 50 years behind bars before being considered for parole. I won't name the other three here, they may be names that you may meet in future episodes of the show. This was a ruling that meant that Hughes would be 80 years old before any possible chance of release. He seems to have accepted his sentence now, for as explained he's not made any further inroads to do this. What he did do that same year was to have lodged a claim for £50,000 in damages for alleged abuse and personal injuries that he suffered while he was in the care of the Brynestin Children's Home in Wrexham. Now that's a very creepy place, it's only about a mile from where I work and I go running past this sometimes. And knowing what went on there in the past, the horrible levels of abuse that went on there, it always chills me a little bit. To be honest, I can't believe it's still standing really. It should have been raised to the ground a long time ago. The former home figured prominently in the Waterhouse report into child abuse in North Wales children's homes back in the early 70s and 1980s, unearthing the biggest scandal of its kind in the UK, a paedophile ring that targeted hundreds of young people in care in the 70s and 80s, because we all know what kind of revelations have stemmed from when allegations of abuse from prominent figures in politics, entertainment and music have been looked at, don't we? You could make a whole series on that just itself. Savile anyone? Glitter? During the 1980s, Hughes was a resident at Brynestin, and he made the claim for personal injuries that he received because of abuse while residing there. This claim was unsuccessful and was rejected, and it caused anger amongst the public who viewed a monster such as Hughes trying to cash in on his notoriety. This was echoed by Christine Jones, the Craigadon area representative on Conway County Borough Council, with her quoted as saying, I am extremely saddened that this issue has raised its ugly head again. It was quite a traumatic time for people in the area, and to have it raised again by this man is diabolical. He's not going to get a lot of sympathy from people around here. Clearly anyone who's been abused at Brynestin has to be treated the same, but I do not think the abuse was in any way the cause of what he did to Sophie Hook. So what has occurred concerning those affected in the years following the horrific crime? Well the Hook family respectfully stayed out of the glare of the media, preferring to deal with their grief in private as a family unit. 
they did not attend the trial themselves, instead being represented by other family members. The couple spent the four-week trial away on holiday with their family, while details were relayed to them by Danny Jones, who attended each day of the trial. They did give a brief but pregnant interview following Hughes' conviction for murder, and as they were approaching the trauma of the first anniversary of Sophie's death, Julie Hook said, Our families have always been close and will continue to be. We don't see that changing. Anniversaries are painful, but so is every other day, and we will no doubt cope like we cope with every other day, with difficulty and deep sadness. Our if-onlys will no doubt come flooding back with force, not that they ever go away. If only I hadn't agreed that the girls could stay over. If only the tent hadn't been bought. If only it had been raining. They will go on forever and ever. Julie went on to speak of the guilt that all four parents had initially felt, though gradually relatives and friends managed to persuade them that they had done no wrong. I protected my children so much, they were not allowed to cross the road on their own. We both feel very, very sorry that the one time she needed us most, we were simply not there for her. That feeling will never go away. They refused point-blank to talk about Hughes. That was still too painful, and of course, completely understandable. What did take away some of, but not all of the pain, was the Hook family welcoming another daughter into the fold in 1997, baby Georgie Rachel, thought by the whole family to have been a gift from Sophie herself. In the years that have followed, the Hook family have silently mourned the loss of their beloved daughter, but have of course never forgotten her. No one has. Jerry Davis, the resident of the area who found Sophie's body, and who we began the episode with a quote from, told many years later of the trauma that he's felt over the years, and that he still feels to this day. Jerry was one of the mourners on the day of Sophie's funeral, specifically requested to be there by Julie and Chris, who wanted to meet him. Jerry recalled that when each mourner was presented with a booklet containing a montage of photographs showing the happy, smiling child that Sophie had been, he couldn't get past the first page without breaking down, the first time that he had since he'd made the discovery. In the years following this, in an attempt to help him bury what must be such a heartbreaking and traumatic memory to carry around, finding the body of a murdered child, Jerry did two things. He began keeping a journal of his feelings and reflections in the days following the discovery and leading up to the funeral, but no more than a short piece of this was ever completed, the words being too painful to even be expressed. Jerry also set up a pressure group known as Parasol, an acronym of Parents aiming to write abysmal sex offender laws, but this again was soon wound up. Chris and Julie Hook and their families also took up the fight and campaigned vigorously for a change in the laws so that anyone convicted of a sexual offence was subject to notification requirements, similar to a system that was already in place in the US at the time, where a record was kept and a database of known sexual offenders maintained. In the wave of the Hooks campaigning and a public and media-supported outcry, the Sexual Offences Act 1997 was passed, creating and implementing a sex offenders registry, which was again codified in the Sexual Offences Act 2003 that is up to date with all changes known to be in force over the present time. It is widely held that it was the public disgust and anger over the murder of Sophie Hook 
that was the genesis of the sex offenders register. Other people have expressed remembrance for Sophie in other ways. For example, there is a website named sophiehook.gonetosoon.org that has had thousands of visitors to it in the 12 years since its creation, and for some time after, there was a coloured glass mural to remember Sophie containing pictures of toys up in the town before it was removed after being subject to mindless vandalism. Still now in Llandidno, near the paddling pool at Craigadon, a brass plaque marks the memory of Sophie Hook for all to see and to remember. It simply reads, In loving memory of a very special little girl, Sophie Hook, gone to eternal life on 30th of July 1995 aged seven years. Whilst researching for this episode, I visited the site myself as I've said, and I paid my respects. I found it quite moving really, I found it quite moving recording this episode. As any writer or host will know that, when you research a case and you get steeped in it for a period, then details become very familiar, and on the rare occasion where one actually gets to visit the very places in question, and retrace the steps, it does strike something in you. As this is another case for my home area and a very high profile one in my opinion, I remember the murder of Sophie Hook very well. I remember the public fury and heartbreak and the sheer horror and revulsion made you hope against hope that something so evil could never happen again. And we all know that sadly that's a futile hope because it happened again and again and again. Again, during my research, I came across several documented recounts of various people who described in colourful language and detail having various run-ins and confrontations with Howard Hughes over the years. I'll not conjecture here based on poorly worded forum posts. I did manage also to talk to a former resident of Rose-on-Sea in the 1980s, who shall remain anonymous, but who remembered Howard Hughes very well and who told me various stories that indeed seemingly testify to his bizarre and threatening behaviour, his appearance and public opinion of him, as well as all but confirming the unhealthy interest in prepubescent girls. I have no reason to disbelieve any of the accounts that were related to me, and these were rich in detail and many in number, as it was well known to the source. I do advise you guys to have a read of the Innocent page in the show notes this week, to make your own mind up and see if the argument against Hughes's conviction is a compelling one. If this is a case you're already familiar with, or one that you've just heard of from the episode, then I would ask you that the one person you remember overall from the account isn't Howard Hughes. Remember little Sophie Hook instead. Now anything concerning the horrific murder of a child doesn't seem right to ask if you've enjoyed it. There isn't really anything to enjoy or to be entertained about by it but I do hope that you found the episode this week both interesting and informative. What then are your thoughts and feelings about the murder of Sophie Hook and Howard Hughes? Is he guilty as charged, or is there a shadow of doubt about his conviction? Debate and discussion are always welcomed in the thread up now on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook, so please let's hear your thoughts about the case. You can get in touch through the usual social media links, I'm the True Crime Enthusiast, or a variation of that on pretty much everything, all of which can be found in the usual places here on the show notes. I shall be back next week on True Crime Thursday with another case that I hope you can join me for. Until then, I've been and still am Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, and I shall catch you again soon. 
Take care and be safe, guys. Thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.